Welcome to the Member Engagement Show with Higher Logic, the podcast for association professionals looking to boost retention, gain new members, and deepen member involvement. Each episode, I'll bring on some experts, we'll talk shop about engagement, and you'll walk away with strategies proven to transform your organization. I'm Beth Arrett, an association evangelist with over 25 years experience in marketing and member engagement, and I'm so happy you're here. Now let's start the show. Welcome back to the Member Engagement Show. This week, I'm excited to have with me Jim Katz, the co-founder and CTO at Rhythm Software. We're going to talk about the past, present, and future of the digital member experience. Jim, welcome. It's so great to have you here. I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, of course. First, thanks for having me. I, uh, I've i been working with associations for about, I would say, the last 20 years or so. Most of that time, I've been building association management systems. But as a as CTO, I've worked with a wide range of associations, trying to figure out ways that they can leverage technology, uh, mostly for interacting with their members. But I would say more broadly, I'm just somebody who's really passionate about technology in all its forms, in all its industries. I tend to follow emerging trends in technology closely, whether they're related to uh, scientific fields or commercial fields, for-profit, non-profit associations. I, I love it all. And uh, I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out how emerging or new technology could benefit associations specifically and and their members. That's a lot. That's a lot of things that I actually tend to like to look at and talk about and see how you can change the technology and work with it better, particularly for associations too. So I know that was one of the things that we definitely have in common, which is it's a lot of fun, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of fun and it helps people. So, you know, can't go wrong there. We did say we were going to talk about the past, the present, and the future. So let's start with the past. So what did member experience look like in the past? What did people used to have to deal with or what were the limitations? Well, when I think back to when I first started working with associations, this was probably in the late 90s or early 2000s. And when I think back to that time, I think two words really jump out to me, manual and physical. And it, I think the member experience typically started with a paper membership form that you would fill out and put your credit card information on and figure out when you could drop it in the mail. And in return, you would often receive a physical membership card. It may be coupled with a printed membership directory. And then maybe once a quarter or once a year, depending on the association, you might receive uh, also in the mail, receive a published journal and once a year or so, you might uh, go to an event and events are something we obviously still have today, but the process for events was very manual too. You would have to typically make a phone call, speak to somebody uh, at the association who is jotting down your information. Uh, I actually spent a summer uh, registering doctors for continuing medical education. So I was on the other end of those phone calls and I know there was uh, a, a drawer that I used to have to pull open and uh, on the fly, find the registration form for the the right session, pull it out, and do my best to try to uh, try to get the the person registered properly. And all learning opportunities were also in person too. So this like very manual and very uh, very manual processes and everything the content that that was being delivered to members was all being done physically. And I think in that world, I think the thing that we really struggled with was the cost of creating and delivering content where you're dealing with manual process and you're dealing with physical goods. Uh, the cost of creating and delivering content is very high. 
you have to design the content. You might have to take it to a printer. When you're mailing content, if you have 10,000 or 100,000 members, the, the cost of just mailing that content is, is not insignificant. And in that world, when it, creating and delivering content has a high cost, it happens infrequently and it happens generically where the same content goes out to everybody. And so associations very much had a, what I like to call a push relationship with members where much like, almost like a TV station, they are deciding what content is gonna go on the air, what content is gonna be sent to members and they are broadcast, broadcasting out on their schedule and it's up to members to tune in at the right time in order to receive that content. Um, I also think in that era for a member, the cost of connection was also very high. And you know, one of the main reasons that people join associations is to connect with the association, but also with, with other members. And the only real opportunities that they had to do that were in person. Uh, so you had uh, members who had to physically be present in order to, to get those connections. So you're talking travel, you're talking time where they have to be away in order to be at these events. Um, and that was the only real channel to, to have those connections. And I remember my first interaction with associations was uh, actually at ASAE, I was exhibiting. And at the time it was, we were trying to convince associations that they ought to be using this new thing called email in order to, to communicate with their members. And we were really excited because email represented a new channel uh, to be able to create content efficiently and cheaply. And it also represented a bi-directional communication channel with your members. So it allowed associations to reach out to their members more frequently to target them with more specific content um, and really kind of represented an incremental improvement in my mind to uh, that relationship between the member and the association. And that was uh, in that era, the dynamic web was first still emerging. Um, and so the idea of up to that point, members uh, in an online experience were, again, only able to, to get online and, and see the content that had been pre-prescribed for them. And in, in that era, associations were trying to figure out what to do with this dynamic web where members could come online and generate their own content and have these low friction, real-time channels to communicate with each other. And I think that uh, if the email was an incremental improvement, I feel like the dynamic web represented a real paradigm shift for those associations. It's really funny because as you're talking about that, I'm remembering my old days as a conference registrar, we, 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 we back in the last century mm -hmm. um, and having to, going through that same process, having to do like all of the manual registration forms and um, people sending in checks that you had to log <laughs> or purchase orders. Oh, where yeah. you had to log those and then you had to like invoice them and reference the purchase order number. People do not realize how good they had it here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and so much of that, that's, when those processes are manual, they're so error prone too, especially when oh, you're yeah. communicating over the phone. You know how hard it is even, I barely even order a pizza now uh, because they, they, it's difficult to even communicate what toppings I want. When you're trying to register for a conference and you're doing credit cards, and you're doing it in volume, so often people show up to the event and you got their registration information wrong or the credit card doesn't process. And yeah, it's, uh, I don't miss those days. No. And we've even got to the point now I will sit outside of a Starbucks with my app open and I will place the order on the app 
because it's so much easier to show, like, put all the customizations in there and then walk in the store and pick up my order. Absolutely. We've become so spoiled compared to back then. Um, So we did, I mean, we kind of just talked about it a little bit, but let's, that was sort of more in general, but let's talk about what today's experience looks like for association members. Well, to, I think to expand on the analogy, if associations, the associations I first met were operating like a TV station, I think today associations are operating more like a streaming service where most of the content that they're delivering now is available on demand. It's been digitized. Those PDFs aren't being printed and mailed around anymore. Uh, you can get online and you can have access. And the your experience when you get online is is more personalized, right? Just like a, a streaming service, the content is, that is being sent out is not the same to everyone. So they've created associations today have created channels for members to come online and pull the content that's relative so that if the relationship used to be a push only relationship, nowadays it's a pull relationship as well where the members can can pull what they need. And the associations I talk with today have really embraced this idea of a two-way communication and two-way interactions with their members and, and taken it a step further and really formalized it. Uh, so the things, the channels like chat or listservs that we saw uh, kind of coming out of that new era when when email became widely available, they've evolved and they've become structured. They become things like moderated communities. The member directory, which originally was physical, it was brought online. And now we've added things like member to member direct interaction. The learning management system has become common. Uh, and those those in-person only learning opportunities have become educational content that's available online to pull on demand. And I think even the, the really high performers um, have even incorporated mobile apps. And so you can have your membership benefits with you wherever you are. Um, but I think when talking about today's association, I think they also still have a lot in common with the previous uh, generation we were, we were talking about um, in that the reason that people join has stayed consistent, right? People still want access to a community of peers. They want access to information that is relevant to, you know, if you're a, uh, a professional society to your profession, or if you're a, a hobbyist uh, a society, then your interests or, or your industry. And they still want access to that credentialing uh, and credibility that comes with being, being a member and to get back to their industries. But what I think is fundamentally different between today's associations and the associations of the past is we used to talk to associations about their technology strategy and talk to them as if it's something separate from how they deliver on those those values to their member. But I don't think that you can make that separation anymore. I think your technology strategy now is your strategy and technology is fundamental to actually uh, achieving uh, and delivering on on that member value. Agreed. And I think that um, the experience that people have in other arenas with, you know, Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and even YouTube TV, things like that, the ease of using those, the ease of using Facebook and LinkedIn compared to sometimes the ease of using association software or their member experience engaging online with associations can be subpar because we don't have the access to the expensive resources and unlimited number of developers and things like that that associations do. So we're limited by what the association can afford to put into place and how much it's it knows about how to use it. 
Absolutely. And I think um, you, you bring up Netflix. I think that's that's a great example. And I think Netflix actually has a lot in common with the what associations are, are trying to, to be today. But there's also a lot of talk with Netflix right now in the industry and, and, and other organizations as well about whether or not they actually are tech companies, right? Because Netflix for the last decade or so, if you pulled somebody on the street, they would say Netflix is a tech company. But I think largely speaking, we're having a lot of conversations that no, Netflix is a content company. Uh, they have more in common with like a, a Paramount or a DreamWorks. They use technology as a vehicle to deliver their value, but their value is content. And I feel like associations are very similar where the technology, although intertwined and can no longer be separated from the mission, the technology is a vehicle for achieving the mission, but it's the content and the mission that uh, really drives the association. Yeah, I think bad technology these days is the equivalent of having somebody answering the phone who has no business answering the phone back in the back in the day. <laughs> exactly right. If you've got the wrong person on the phone, you're going to lose some members. If you've got the wrong technology, you're going to lose some members. Absolutely. Amazon, we always talk about wanting that Amazon experience. It's, you know, I hear it all the time, but I think that really as associations, we should provide the Amazon plus experience because we should know our members better than Amazon knows a customer. Absolutely. Our members come to us for specific things. They come to us for stuff that we are supposed to be sort of the experts in and know a lot about and be able to connect them with other people on. Amazon doesn't know if you ordered that Susan Boyle CD for yourself or if you ordered that Susan Boyle CD for your grandfather, but it's going to keep suggesting Susan Boyle to you long after your grandfather is not interested anymore. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it's Amazon. And it's also, it's really, it's all our interactions these days. It's uh, when you get onto social uh, talking about uh, Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram, the content that you're, you're getting is, is curated. It's for you because they know your behavior, they know your interests and they deliver the content that is most relevant to you. And I think social companies really kind of led that charge in saying no two people are, are alike and the experience needs to be tailored for every person individually. And, you know, it's not something you can just flip a switch and it's there. You do have to work at it. You have to create the right system. You have to put the right system in place and you have to make sure you have the right data, right? Yeah. And it's a combination of uh, different kinds of data. It's it's your transactional data. You know, as a, uh, working with AMSs for a long time, they're keepers of that transactional member information. What is the member uh, purchasing and what is the member, how often are they renewing? What committees are they on? It's also behavioral information, whether you're, whether you're on a uh, community platform or a learning management system. The, the member is every day telling you what they're interested in. And the question is, are you going to listen? Exactly. There's so much. I know we talk about digital, digital body language in a different way. There's a book about it, um, but it's talking about you know putting yourself online. But there's a whole other kind of digital body language that's more akin to, well, the matrix. If it, more, that's the best way I can think to put it. Um, and that's what people are doing, what they're interacting with. And it's kind of like if you're at a trade show and you're in the exhibit hall, you can see the body language. If you're paying attention, you can tell if the person's interested. You can tell if they're like got one foot out of the booth and they really want to leave. You can do that same thing online. You just have to read what their data is saying. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can be more scientific about it when it's online, right? A lot of when it's in person, a lot of it is trying to read those cues and use past experience to, to put a filter over over those, that, those interactions. But 
when you're online, when you're looking at data, you have huge amounts of computational power at your disposal. And it's, it becomes easy to run experiments and scientifically analyze what your members are doing and try new things in order to affect that behavior and see what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And you can put things in front of them based on that and you can automate communication so that you've got a really individual, personal interaction with that, with every single member online, on your community, through your emails, things like that. I think we've shifted to, it's no longer a, a thing that we should be doing. It's a thing now that people expect. Oh yeah. You have to be doing it. Uh, by the time I left um, AAAE last year, we had it set up so that if you came to the website, once you logged in, the news, resources, events, and advertising you saw were all based on your subject engagement score. Your engagement is one of 12 subjects, whichever one you engage with the highest. And it's just, it's one of those things that you people expect. They want you to put the information in front of them. So I went to the Mid-Atlantic SAE Mid-Year Conference last week and it was some great conversation but one of the things that stuck with me was reggie henry from asae did the closing keynote and he said that when people come to amazon they're going to the site to search when they're going to your association site they're not going there to search they're going to get a job done so you really want to focus on what kind of job your members are coming to your site to do and making sure you present the information that they need to do that and i love that i thought it was so insightful Absolutely. There is that, you know, especially when you're talking about uh, getting online to your the member section, a member portal, and these kind of things. Those are, are very transactional. As the association, you're incentivized to figure out how to get a member through these transactions as efficiently as possible, right? You don't want them to drop um, and you don't want to take up too much of their time. They're busy people who have, have lives to get back to. But I also think with uh, the content that an association is generating, whether it's it's educational or industry trends, um, these kind of things, I also think there's an opportunity to create value out of that content and deliver that value to members outside of a transactional relationship. But again, I think you have to be really targeted and really know who people are and make that concept, content consumable in a, uh, a quick we're competing for everybody's time right now and, and yes. everyone has a, a million distractions and we're up in that arena for a very limited resource in people's time competing against many, many other uh, priorities. And so it has to be very tuned and attention grabbing. And if people are interested, they will dig further. And I think that's that's the kind of kind of more modern relationship with uh, between the association and the member. And I think it's okay to remind them like say you know they clicked on a web page and they're like it looks like they might be interested in a particular certificate program but mm -hmm. then they go away to do other things it's okay to follow up and remind them as long as you don't hound them there's a fine Absolutely. line so um over the last couple of years with people isolated in at home so much how do you think the pandemic and all of that has escalated this shift in the expectations that we just talked about well i think we're all Unfortunately, very intimately familiar with the the big impact of the pandemic and in the loss of those in-person events. Um, and I think the associations, um, that was a, a big blow for associations, but also for members. I think a lot of the members like uh, being on site, having an opportunity to cultivate relationships or maybe get certified. And associations liked having 
beyond the financials of, uh, of events, associations like having that captive audience in order to deliver a bunch of valuable content, a bunch of information to attendees. And so we lost this huge channel for member engagement, both, and, and I think associations and members both suffered. But as we were working with associations, we saw them have to adapt very quickly. And they, they did in many ways, bringing webinars or, or virtual events and I especially think there was a big transition around from what we've seen around online learning, where educational content that was strictly in person, there was a huge shift of, of that content online. We actually have uh, one association we work with who pre-pandemic was doing five training sessions a year, and it was mostly attended by local members. So when the pandemic started, they realized they can't do this anymore and, and brought them online, and it had a secondary effect, which was non-local people suddenly had access to this content. And that same, uh, that same customer is now doing 150 educational sessions online. So 30 times the, the amount or the availability of that educational content just by bringing it online. Are you seeing people sticking to that now that things are starting to open up? Or do you see people slipping back into old, oh, well, we'll just do in person or we'll cut back on that and you know stick to in person or the people who've done um, online or hybrid events going back to just in person and no longer providing the hybrid experience? If you ask me, um, I think a lot of these effects are transient. I'd heard um, people discussing early on in the pandemic, uh, the death of, of in-person events. Personally, I think that is a transient effect. I think that goes long beyond and, and deeper than the pandemic. I think biologically, we are social animals. We crave personal interaction. And I see this actually for us internally too, because we're a virtual company. Um, we built processes and tools and we have people all across the country, but we fly everyone together once a quarter. And the feedback internally is overwhelmingly positive. People look forward to these quarterly, these quarterly events. And I, I think we're seeing the same effect as restrictions are, are lifted. We've seen a lot of interest coming back in getting out there and being back at in-person events. Um, I know ASAE has been doing a lot of great work with the Exhibitions and Conferences Alliance uh, to bring back, accelerate recovery of the, the business events industry. And I think overall, I think that's great news for the member, uh, for the association, for the exhibitors who want to, to get there and have access to the community, for sponsors. But I think there are some trends. And so the, on the return to, to in-person events, I think, is, is coming. But I think there are other trends that were already in motion that the pandemic accelerated that were more long-term trends. And I think you see more of that in things like the educational content, um, where you're you're making content accessible to a wider audience through online learning. And I think if you boil it down even further, what that um, creating that content, moving that content online is just a further extension of that same trend we've been talking about, which is taking content that was broadcast or pushed and accessible in person and moving it online and moving it into a, a pull relationship where members can, at, at their convenience on their schedule, have access to this content. Agreed. I know a lot of people um, I've talked to recently have been talking about the fact that it can be, it's a lot more difficult. It's a, it requires a lot more resources, but talking about ASAE, another thing that Reggie said last week was how arrogant is it to invite 10,000 people into the tent for a virtual conference? And then the next year, just close the tent by not offering <laughs> anything virtual. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there will always be communities of people who, uh, for for one reason or another, uh, a in-person event uh, creates an accessibility challenge to, to them. I'm seeing more. One of the things that they were talking about last week were they're hearing from more and more, not just ASAE, but just in general, people were talking about they're hearing more and more from even companies who might come exhibit or you know people who would attend. They're being limited there's a whole concern about carbon footprint, gasoline and fuel is so expensive, travel has gotten more expensive. And so they're being limited to pick only one conference a year. And so if they can't participate online, they only get the one interaction a year and that's it. Yeah, I don't think I don't think even if in-person events uh, are end up coming back, I don't think that um, this opportunity to take the content and the experience that happens at an in-person event and archive it, digitize it and decompose it uh, and make it accessible um, in order to make it available to a, a wider audience. I don't think that's going away. I think some people might try, but I think they're going to find out that their members have a little bit of a problem with it. Some people very much just want to get back to the way it was, I think. But sorry, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Right? <laughs> sure. I heard somebody say, well, you really can put the genie back in the bottle if you want to. I'm like, okay, but try putting that toothpaste back in the tube. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, with that in mind, what do you think tomorrow or, you know, the future experience is going to look like? Do you think that VR and AR might play a part? Well, I think there's still, for associations, I think there's still a lot of room to incorporate that trend we can talk about around personalization. I think like we were talking about uh, tracking member behavior and figuring out how to promote the content that's relevant um, and and move members towards a more personalized uh, member experience. I think there's a lot of runway there. I see associations now who are starting to view their members more like a digital subscriber and the types of things that they're doing there are debundling their member benefits in order to provide, you, you mentioned Amazon Prime and, and Plus, having that like base content that everybody has access to, being able to push the things that we know by their behavior that they're interested in, so push them at recommendations, but then also let them select into other areas of content that are more applicable and interesting to them, even if it's adding on to that subscription. So adding that plus, like adding Paramount TV to your your Apple or your Amazon Prime uh, subscription, and I, we mentioned machine learning too. I think uh, machine learning is there's a lot of room to uh, for associations to start using machine learning in order to deliver those very personalized personalized experiences. VR is interesting to me. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about VR. Um, VR is, uh, I think it's important to look at VR through the right lens, so to speak. VR is a entirely new platform. And for me as a technologist, that's exciting because a new platform creates entirely novel experiences and possibilities. So all the changes we've been talking about, uh, about changing that interaction from a, a pull or push relationship to a pull relationship, adding that personalization, all those changes are really due to the last three major platform shifts, um, which are the personal computer, the internet, and the smartphone. But I think when a new platform emerges, it really takes some time to see how viable it's going to be. Because for every internet and smartphone, we have things like uh, wearables, um, which were supposed to be a new platform, things like Google Glass that were expected to be a new platform that didn't really gain the traction. So I think right now we're in that early stage of VR where everything is uh, very exciting, but it's also a time of uncertainty because when a platform is brand new, 
typically creating an experience on a, a platform uh, that is new is expensive and it's time consuming. And it's hard because at the same time that the, developing the experience is, it, it takes a lot of resources, the footprint and the install base is relatively low. And that's because the devices themselves are expensive and often seen as a luxury or a toy. They're seen as a luxury or a toy because there isn't a lot of content. So you have this uh, chicken and egg type situation where you need the install base to gain traction in order to justify building the cost and the, the expense of building the content, but the content won't exist until the install base is large enough to justify it. And I think you see a lot of uh, projects that invest in platforms early fall short of expectations. Actually, a much higher rate, uh, new technology in general is always a risky endeavor. But with platforms especially, um, or new platforms, uh, those kind of projects tend to fail at an even higher rate. And examples of that are things like the Windows Phone or the Fire Phone or for the internet, MySpace and VRML or for wearables, things like the Apple Watch, which although still around, um, I think didn't really end up uh, becoming the, the new platform that people had hoped. And when a new platform's coming out, it takes a little while, uh, and what we call all this is network effects. So it takes a little while to see if network effects will kick in and the platform will gain enough traction in order to become revolutionary the way the internet and the smartphone did. To give a little bit of insight into timing, the personal computer was first available in 1977. And I know we got one, our first computer in the 80s, and we were the only household uh, that I knew of in, in, in the late 80s with a PC. But the PC, we, we, we might forget, the PC didn't actually hit 70% adoption in US households until 2007. So it took 30 years between the PC being uh, released to a point where it was in 70% of our households. The internet is very much the same story. The first networks were in the 60s. Uh, TCP IP, which was kind of the backbone of the internet, came out in 1983. In the, but in the 80s, when we had that first PC, we were still using a, I don't know if you remember these, the coupler, where we actually had to take the phone off the hook and insert it on a device. And this was... Oh, God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I worked, I worked at, um, I was a DJ at a radio station. And we had to use that type, that thing to like connect up for all of our remotes. It was the bane of my existence because you didn't get hooked just right. Forget it. Yeah, absolutely. Or call waiting comes and clicks through and you, you get hung up on. And yeah, it was actually, it wasn't until 1994 that the web browser even existed. So the internet came out and it was text-based. So we, we call that in tech, that's a killer app, right? The, the web browser came out and it brought the internet to the mainstream. But even 10 years after the web browser came out, we were still, that that was the era that we were talking to associations, trying to convince them that members should be able to interact with associations online. And it wasn't until 2007 that the internet, 70% uh, of US adults said that they actually use the internet. So we're talking for the internet, a 40 year transition between the first networks and when we were hitting hitting that kind of saturation. And I think that's interesting because we always talk about technology about as moving very fast. And I really believe it does. And it does when you talk about the, the level of changes and the impact that it has on our day-to-day -day lives, but it often happens over the course of, of decades. And I think our perspective on, 
on platforms is a little bit warped because of the last major computing platform that came out, which was a smartphone, which was released in 2007 with the iPhone. And only eight years later, smartphones were in 70% of US households. And so that's really fast adoption. But I think, I think that uh, was skewed because at the time the, the iPhone came out, already 70% of uh, US households had a cell phone. So your option was now purchase an analog cell phone or, or a, a digital but dumb phone or purchase a, a smartphone. And so that, that switching cost was much lower for people. And so network effects kicked in early. Uh, we already had content from the internet that was being delivered on smartphones. And so adoption happened very fast. So I think when we're talking about VR, there's a tendency to look at the last platform shift, the smartphone, and try to estimate uh, timelines based off of that. But I think uh, VR has more in common with the personal computer uh, and that adoption rate than it does with the smartphone. Um, and I think if anything could have accelerated that adoption, it would have been the pandemic, but numbers don't just don't really uh, justify that. The numbers are kind of hard to nail down, but somewhere around single digits to up to, I've seen up to 20% uh, estimates of US households that have a, a VR device. And of those, only about like 30%, 20 something percent use it daily. VR has a long way to go. I know 2% of households worldwide uh, have a VR device. I think VR is very interesting, but I think it's a, um, I think it's a, long, a long game. And I think the major companies that are investing in VR very much understand this. Uh, for instance, Meta has put, last year alone, put 10 billion into VR development, into developing the, the metaverse. But if you hear, listen to their guidance that they're giving shareholders, they're telling them don't expect a return on that investment anytime soon, that it is, it's a multi-decade uh, strategy. And I know when that, they announced that, it surprised some, but I think that's completely consistent with uh, a company that's trying to build for an early platform when the, the audience is still small. In terms of uh, lifespan of VR, Oculus was, uh, the, the Rift was launched in 2012. So we're roughly 10 years into what could be, I think, a 30 or 40 year uh, platform adoption. As an association, if you're sitting there wondering if your members are gonna be coming to you in the 2020s asking for VR content, so I'm skeptical about that. I think that's doubtful. But will they be coming to you in the 2030s or 2040s? Well, I think there's a higher likelihood there. For me, what I plan to do is, uh, as with any new platform, is just pay attention, um, experiment, get familiar. I own a, an Oculus. Um, I'm one of those people who uses it once a month. Uh, but I'm really intrigued by some of the, the new, new rumors going around. Right now, I know uh, Apple, uh, there have been a lot of rumors that Apple is, uh, is building a, a VR or AR device. It was actually rumored to be released last week at WWDC, but it, it didn't happen. It's been, uh, but it's been rumored for a while. And for me, um, Apple was a a leader in PCs with the Mac. They were a leader on the internet with iTunes, and they were a leader. Obviously, created the smartphone industry. So when when Apple is paying attention to a platform, I tend to sit up and take notice. And I think Apple has an opportunity to really do what they do well, which is around design and form factor and user experience, which I think is currently lacking a bit on the VR side, especially if this is going to be a device that we're using on a regular basis. You will know when uh, VR is becoming a part of our daily lives, when you start seeing 
companies driving you towards their VR experience. So if you're on a platform like a TV or a computer and they're trying to get you to visit them in VR, I think that that's an early indicator. For me, as with any new technology, I think personally, my early indicators will be when my friends and family uh, start asking me to come over and set up their new VR device or uh, give them advice on which device to build, then I'll know that, um, that we're hitting that critical mass. Well, I have to say I am part of the 2% as well. And um, <laughs> I'm actually on my third Oculus. I, Are had, you really? I had, yeah, I had the old school one that they made where you could put your phone in it. Yeah. With limited experiences. I'm such an early adopter. It's, it, it's, I'm a, I'm a total nerd. And so then I got the, when the pandemic hit, I got the first Oculus, the, the actual, like the Oculus one or whatever you, um, Oculus quest. Mm-hmm. And, um, I now have the quest two and I've passed the quest down to my best friend who I don't think has even turned it on yet. Um, but I and just the- love it. I use it frequently. My limitations are, um, largely the battery life. I even got the one with the bigger battery, which hurts my neck. And I still, I play it until the battery, but mine is mostly, I, it it replaced my trainer. I don't go to the gym anymore. Yeah. And I think you're, you're nailing, um, exactly kind of my feelings. The, the, the platform has a, a, a lot of potential, the, those kind of things, like you're talking about the form factor and the experience, the battery dying quickly and the, the, the neck pain, um, and originally, even before the the quests that when it was wired, um, mm-hmm. these are the, these are the kind of hurdles that I think we need to overcome in order to to get mass appeal. And but I think I think you're right. There are the early adopters are out there. And what I think what not to do with VR is I think you need to understand that uh, early adopters in particular have high expectations. They're purchasing expensive equipment, and it's part of their identity is trying out something new. And so they want you to use the device to its fullest capability. So um, my advice would be not to half step here. Um, I don't think VR is something you can dip a toe into. Either you you are going to invest in and create a fully immersive experience, or you shouldn't bother. Uh, I think we see a lot of trying to use last generation platforms to deliver next generation experiences. Uh, like you know, your Second Life type uh, examples, where you're you're using the last platform, internet and personal computer, in order to try to deliver an immersive virtual experience, which is next generation platform. And I think in the in the end, what you end up creating is the the worst of both worlds, um, an interface that is spatially limited and not immersive, and uh, on, running on a platform that requires downloads and and a two-dimensional user interface and that kind of thing. And a lot of people don't have the equipment to actually keep up with what you've provided. And so you get people whose avatars freeze or they're half formed and they have no, they have like arms and legs and a head, but that's it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. Where'd my body go? (laughs) Oh, Second Life. I've forgotten all about Second Life. Wow. (laughs) That was a whole lifetime ago. No pun intended. It it is fun though. It's fun to go play in this stuff. And it's hard sometimes as early adopters, I think, to remember that, it takes everybody else a while to, to, to get comfortable with it. I do wonder if there's a gap, if there are gap fills. No, I don't wonder. I know that there are gap fills in there, like companies that can provide a turnkey VR conference arm of your event, something where, you know, they have the equipment, they can go in and they'll provide it the same way that uh, a company might go in and provide turnkey registration or turnkey online events. Yeah, I completely agree. This is where we, um, 
I think this was the thing for me that was exciting about um, uh, the idea of Apple getting into the space, but more specifically that Apple was targeting their world, worldwide developers conference to make this announcement because the if the big barrier to widespread adoption is the balance between install base and cost and, and effort to build content, if we can bring down that cost and effort to build content, much like the the internet, where it's very cheap to build a website, if we can make it uh, cheap and efficient to build uh, virtual experiences, well, then we have an opportunity to to drive up that install base. Um, and Apple specifically targeting developers as the first people. This wasn't a uh, their spring event or their fall event where they're they're uh, speaking directly to consumers. The rumors were that they were going to release it at the developer conference. And I think that's meaningful um, that they obviously have uh, that same understanding that uh, creating the content, making it available, uh, making it easy to create the content is uh, the first barrier we have to knock down. Kind of going down that same road or further down that road, Gen Z is now in the workforce and you know the boomers are kind of on their way out and everyone forgets uh, us Gen Xers exist. With, with that in mind, you know, what kind of effect do you think that all of these generational shifts is going to have on a member experience over the next few years? I think the Gen Z very much demands that um, personal tailored experience uh, that we've been talking about, right? This is the generation that that grew up with the unbundling of cable, uh, that grew up with uh, streaming services. They also grew up with the ability to curate their social feeds. The social feeds are, are delivering the content that's interesting to them. And, you know, they're seeing the Instagram reel and they're clicking into it if they're interested and, and learning more. And these are the kind of interactions that, that Gen Z demands. It's that Again, we've been talking about push and pull. Gen Z demands both, right? They they need to be able to have access to the things that are, they're interested in, but because their attention is pulled in a million directions, they also need to be notified when there's something relevant to them. They're they're drown. Gen Z is drowning in information, and their attention is saturated. And I think you see this in the popularity of things like TikTok and Instagram Reels where content is bite-sized, it lasts 10 seconds. And if you're interested in more like that, or you want to you dive further, you have that opportunity. I think Gen Z still, uh, kind of beyond their, their interactions themselves, I think it's important to, to always keep in mind that um, Gen Z is a generation, in my mind, that's also looking for fellowship, specifically where they feel like they can have a positive impact and do good. And that could be uh, direct one-to-one uh, interactions, personal. Uh, it could be in their community. Um, and it's it's very much global uh, for this generation. And I think associations are very well positioned because it's associations who are often the driver of good. I think with um, with Gen Z in particular, I think it's going to be important to, on, a, on that personal level, explain to them how their membership benefits uh, are able to drive those those good works in the community and, and how they can participate. And I think I think every generation that comes up begins to demand interactions with the technology that they grew up with. Um, and I think for for the previous generation, it was the personal computer, it was the internet. I think with this generation, it's around it's all Gen Z. It's all around personalization and um, selecting uh, and only uh, receiving the things that I'm interested in. Uh, I think when we talk VR, I think that's going to be the next generation. 
it's the kids today who are growing up in the household with the Oculus who are going to, in 20 years, be the ones that are really driving the demand for VR. I look at my nephews, the younger nieces and nephews who are, you know, 10, 14 years old, that great range, and they've grown up with their video games in their room. And they're going to expect that kind of stimulation from their engagement when they get older. Always. And it's going to be interesting to see how that's provided because, I mean, VR is one of them, but, you know, my nephew lives on his Xbox and they're going to want that kind of, well, I mean, that kind of stimulation, that kind of um, dopamine hit. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. What do you think then that associations need to be doing to make sure that they're in touch with the type of experiences that these members are going to want, especially with this growing variety and how people want to consume information? The very first thing is to be be personal. And um, by that, I mean, uh, give your members a menu of options. Maybe maybe you should consider decomposing that your membership benefits, have membership as a base package and have uh, additional things that you can add on, treating it more like a digital subscription. And I think as I was mentioning with your content, understand that the attention span and the competition for attention is fierce. And so make your content bite-sized, make it something that will grab interest and then move people into uh, deeper content if they're interested. I also think associations need to continue to be aspirational uh, and promote the way that their association helps the world and their community just as much as the benefits the member receives. I think in many cases, how the association is benefiting the world uh, for many in Gen Z and beyond is more important than the actual tangible benefits that they personally receive. And I think uh, you should be giving, and in that vein, you should be giving members quick and actionable ways to make a difference and to do good and become involved. So if, as an example, if you're sending an email out and you're doing fundraising, have the specific funds, details about the specific funds and quick donation buttons that allow them to you know, choose denominations and complete that transaction quickly and, and move on. And if, you're, if it's around legislative affairs and you're trying to mobilize your membership to uh, maybe um, talk to their congressperson, if you're going to promote that to the member, give them a script, uh, give them the number to call. Uh, don't just tell them, hey, please call your congressperson. If they're, the time and the demands on their attention is higher than ever, prescribe exactly the actions that need to be taken. I think you'll find um, members of the next generation are, are more than willing to, to get involved. The last thing is to be intelligent. I think this is what we're talking about with, uh, with behavior, analyzing member behavior and uh, personalizing those experiences. I think there's a lot of lessons here that uh, associations can learn from traditional media. Um, traditional media had to make that shift online. They learned ways to view that behavior and figure out how to customize the, the experiences content uh, for I individual people. I think associations have done some of that with things like progressive profiles, where you receive information, receive data as you're giving value. People are more likely to want to give you information at the time that they're get, you're giving them value. But also, I think there's a long way to go in tracking behavior across systems, whether it's your LMS and your AMS and your member portal and your community platform and e-marketing, bringing all that data together and then becoming uh, intelligent about how you you use that. So it might be leveraging machine learning. But as I mentioned, there's a lot of platforms out there and lessons to learn. Like um, what we're really talking about is like a customer data platform. 
that has an encompassing view of all the behavior and interests of your member. And these kind of systems are out there um, and have been uh, been brought to bear by other media companies. Um, and I think there's a lot of lessons there to be learned. Yeah, and I think that it's going to be fascinating to watch over the next 10, 20 years. I'm always excited to see what comes up next. Maybe to close, what one thing do you think associations really need to do? And we talked about making that personal experience, but tactically speaking about how to do that. I think the, the at least what we're seeing it is in making sure all your systems are communicating with each other, that as uh, your members are in the learning management system, um, that the data of what they're accessing and, and how they're performing is feeding back into a single centralized platform, um, whether it's your, your AMS or um, a separate, uh, separate data lake, the behavior of the member on uh, your community platform. I think the first step in being intelligent about the data is storing the data and analyzing the data. Um, and, and that means getting it all in the same place. So we're seeing a lot of work right now around um, using integrations and APIs to bring uh, the entire technology ecosystem closer together. Yeah. And that's the, to go back to my example from AAAE, the reason we were able to provide that is because we got all of our information in one place. We had one source of truth and it made it easy to look at all of it and holistically and then automate how you looked at it to do that personal experience. And I loved that you used the word personal specifically. It's not about personalization anymore. It's not enough to have your site say, hi, Beth. Nice to see you. Hey, Jim, glad you're here. No, you have to provide a personal experience that's personal to them. Exactly. And, you know, it's it's when your members say it really feels like the association knows me, that's when you know you're winning. Know your members through and through. And you want them to to, to feel seen and feel known. I think that's a great place to end on, actually. So... Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's such a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to get this posted and get it out there for people to hear. My pleasure, Beth. It was very, I, anytime, I always love uh, sitting around and talking about these kind of things. I, I spend a lot of my own time tackling or trying to wrestle with these kind of you know, future-sided questions. So, yeah. Same here. So, um, yeah, I think we should talk again sometime. It'd be fun. For everybody else, please don't forget to subscribe to the Member Engagement Show through Apple, Google, your Apple Watch, your Samsung Watch, um, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter Association Marketing Pros or AMP to get your weekly dose of association marketing news. And you can grab that link from the episode notes. And thanks for listening. See you next week.